They say there's a first time for everything. Let's put that to the test. Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode one of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. This is going to be a semi-daily talk show where I talk about the latest headlines in sports, go over some dramatic headlines, maybe play some games, give my thoughts and takes on what's going out there in the world of athletics, and we're just going to move along through this. Now, I don't have a fixed schedule right now. I'm currently trying to work it out. It doesn't help that I'm traveling across the country to go see my mom next week, but we're going to get back here and we're going to establish a real routine and we're going to stick to it. But today's show, we've got a good one. We're going to start it off with a little bit of a banger here because LeBron James, last night, Tuesday night, recording this midday Wednesday, Tuesday night, LeBron broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time NBA scoring record. The captain was in attendance, as were many, many other celebrities, Jay-Z, Shannon Sharp, too many people to name. And I want to look at this, first of all, not only as the monumental achievement as it is, we need to realize the enormity of what just happened. LeBron has scored over 38,000 points, and he's not going to retire until he scored probably at least 42,000. And that's assuming he retires maybe two or three years down the road and he's sustained this level of play. If he goes through a normal fall-off towards the end of the career where he has two or three down years, think about Kobe's last year. I think he shot less than 40% from the field and was averaging 17 points. If we get something like that out of LeBron in his, gosh, 23rd, 24th season, he's going to push that record even farther. Now, Cam Thomas has scored 44-plus points in three straight games. Maybe he's out to break it. Obviously, that's not going to happen. It's going to take a Herculean effort from somebody in the future. People have floated around the idea of Giannis Antetokounmpo because he keeps his body in such good shape like LeBron does. Here's a heads up. Giannis was not that good his first few years in the NBA. He was averaging less than 10 points a game when he first got here. He has no hope, and Giannis is great. I think he's the best player in the world but he just got too late of a start. Let's look at someone like Luka Doncic. Well, Luka snitched on himself. He said he doesn't want to be playing that long. And as fun as Luka is, he hasn't demonstrated that he has the commitment to his body to be able to last until 38-plus years old. I think by the time he hits 32, 33, he might have a significant fall-off. Maybe not because he doesn't totally rely on his athleticism, but he might be more prone to injuries. We can look at a guy like Kevin Durant. This is where it gets fun. So LeBron James, after last night's performance, has 38,390 points. And I'm going to spoil something we're going to talk about later. He's fifth all-time in average points per game. He's over 27. He's just over 27. Let's look down the list at Kevin Durant. Now, Kevin Durant is fourth on the all-time average list. He is 27.3 to LeBron's 27.2. But if we look at total points... Kevin Durant is at 26,684. That means he is almost 12,000 points behind LeBron. You know what 12,000 is? That's almost a third of LeBron's total. And they're not totally dissimilar in age. Kevin Durant is 34. LeBron is 38, just turned 38. It's remarkable to think about what this guy is doing and just how long you have to have dominated the league to get to the point that he's at. Now that that's out of the way, I want to dive into a conversation that has befuddled and puzzled many NBA minds around the league. To me, for very little reason. It's hard for me to understand. And this, of course, is, is LeBron James a scorer first and foremost, or is he the greatest scorer ever? Now, Kevin Durant, who I was just talking about, came out and said that he never bought into the thing, the hype that 
the moniker that LeBron was a pass-first guy who could then score, or he wasn't a passer that could score. I think he is still a pass-first guy. But he basically said, you know, LeBron's a scorer and everybody needs to recognize him as such. But you can talk to other media members, you can talk to other fans, basketball historians, and they'll say there's absolutely no way LeBron stacks up amongst the all-time greats. Now, most people are going to put Michael Jordan at number one, but you can look at so many other people in this list. Kobe Bryant, if you want to look at big man, look at someone like Dirk Nowitzki. If you want to look at somebody who was just about buckets, look at someone like Allen Iverson. LeBron is better than all of these guys at scoring the basketball. I hate to say it. The only player who I can see a real argument against it is Michael Jordan. And what a surprise. Those two are locks neck and neck for the greatest of all time title as well. But let's go back to that all-time points per game list that I was just talking about. Michael Jordan is number one in all-time points per game at 30.1. He's just ahead of Wilt Chamberlain, Chamberlain, who is also 30.1. You have to go an extra decimal place over to decide that. Now, Michael Jordan completely revolutionized the game of basketball, not necessarily so much in terms of play style, but he had otherworldly athleticism, and he globalized the NBA as a sport. He brought a lot more people and a lot more attention to it. Wilt Chamberlain was just an athletic mismatch. This is a guy that was running 49 seconds for the 400 meter when he ran track at Kansas. This is a guy who supposedly has a 50-inch vertical leap, and if that's true, that would be the highest in NBA history. He was playing against a bunch of, I hate to say it, a bunch of players who, let's say, had other jobs as well. And those who had full-time jobs in the NBA, they just weren't as skilled, they weren't as talented, they weren't as gifted as Wilt. It wasn't even fair. And Wilt was also averaging 46 minutes a night. The next highest on this list is our guy in third place, Elgin Baylor, who averaged 40 points, or excuse me, 40 minutes per night. Now there's a great fall off between Jordan Wilt and then Elgin Baylor. He's down at 27.4, which slides right into Kevin Durant, 27.3, LeBron James, 27.2. So those are the top five out there automatically. Some of those other guys I mentioned, let's go down this list. Kobe Bryant, 25 points per game. Carl Malone, another guy who prided himself on longevity and I believe is third place in the all-time scoring list. He's at 25 points per game. Okay, how about maybe the greatest isolation scorer in the history of basketball? James Harden, 24.8 points per game. Okay, how about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the guy who just had the scoring record until less than 12 hours ago? Oh, yeah, he's at 24.6 points per game. Steph Curry. The greatest three-point shooter ever. Now, I don't know if you guys are good at math, but three points are worth more than two. In fact, they're worth 150% of two. So surely the guy who's making more threes, more shots of more value than anybody in, any, in NBA history has to be high up this list, right? He is. He's 17th, but he's at 24.5 points per game. So we need to look at LeBron's achievement on the all-time scoring list, not just as an accomplishment of longevity. Because that's not what it is. He's not crawling over the line getting 10 points in the, in the final seasons. He's still legitimately averaging and boosting his scoring average, which is the fifth best in NBA history. And when people, I want to go back to this topic of what do we think of when we hear the term scorer? We think of Kevin Durant, someone who's smooth from every level of the court, someone who looks like they never have a bad shot. Kevin Durant, you got to keep in mind, he's seven feet tall as well. He can be heavily, heavily contested with two, three players in his face, and it doesn't matter. It's not a bad shot because he can just rise up and shoot over them. He has that 
Larry Bird sort of shot style where it's almost unblockable because of where it's released from, except he's taller, more athletic, and he releases the ball higher in his jump shot. Larry Bird shot it from behind his head. And Kevin Durant is averaging less than 0.1 more points per game than LeBron is. And I don't want to be a dead horse, but Kevin Durant came into the league as a more refined scorer than LeBron did. LeBron was averaging 21 on 41% as a rookie. I don't know Durant's exact numbers, but coming out of Texas, it was a foregone conclusion that this guy was going to win a scoring title. And it didn't take him long to do that, and it didn't take him long to win an MVP. So that's one thing. Let's go look at the numbers on the shooting percentages. If we're going to call Michael Jordan the greatest scorer of all time, again, there's a valid argument to that. He's one of the people that it's hardest to disprove. But if we look at career field goal percentage, Jordan's shot 49.7%. Now, that's outstanding for a shooting guard. It really is. But LeBron's better. He's at 50.5%. What about Durant? He's better than Jordan, believe it or not. You know, even though he's seven feet tall, he's not supposed to be able to be on the move and pull up and shoot off the dribble like he does. He's at 49.8. That's worse than LeBron. Elgin Baylor, the guy who dominated his era, 27.4 points per game, third all-time on the list. He only shot 43% from the field. The only player in the top five with a better field goal percentage than LeBron is Wilt Chamberlain. And aside from Bill Russell, again, the physical mismatch was just beyond belief. It wasn't. It wasn't even fair. Almost. Now, I don't. I. I don't like saying that, or rather, I don't want to take away from what Will did because he he dominated everybody in front of him. He can't go to a a lab and handpick a genetic freak to go against. But the the facts are the facts. It was just an unfair mismatch. I mean, looking at the rest of the top scores list, the other the only other guy who has a better field goal percentage than LeBron in the top ten is George Gervin. Now, George Gervin was an outstanding scorer, too, 26.2 points per game. But nobody ever thinks of George Gervin as the greatest scorer in NBA history, except for maybe Spurs fans or, you know, some of my older listeners, maybe in the 50s, 60-year-old range. Aside from that, there's just such a disservice being done to LeBron's legacy as a scorer. And now let's, let's compare him to other great scorers of his era, someone like Carmelo Anthony. He is averaging way more points than Carmelo Anthony. Way more points than Carmelo Anthony. Do you, do you have a guess of what Carmelo's is? Think about it. This is a guy who was dropping 62 points in Madison Square Garden. This is a guy who the Knicks traded their entire franchise to pick up. This is a guy who, when LeBron was about to become the first unanimous MVP in NBA history, stole a vote away because he was so dominant. 22 and a half points per game. That's the answer to Carmelo. 22 and a half points per game is his career average. That's five points per game fewer than LeBron. He averages more than Allen Iverson. He averaged more than George Gervin, like I just talked about. We have somehow, we constantly move the goalposts for LeBron. And somehow, I thought, silly old me, we were going to keep them in the same place for maybe the most incredible career achievement in league history statistical achievement the most incredible career achievement is probably bill russell's 11 championships in 13 years but that's a team award back to statistical individual awards nobody thought kareem's record was going to be broken and what have we done we've turned lebron's sustained dominance his longevity into a flaw we have made it a case that 
he's just been so good for so long that somehow it proves that he will never be better as a scorer than someone like Michael Jordan, someone like Kobe Bryant, someone like Kevin Durant. It, it's just silly. It's just preposterous. Speaking of Kevin Durant, the Brooklyn Nets, one of Durant's former teammates, Kyrie Irving, the Nets just traded Kyrie to the Dallas Mavericks a couple of days ago. The deal was just recently finalized. It sees Kyrie Irving and Markeith Morris going to the Mavericks in exchange for Dorian Finney-Smith, some picks, I believe, don't know them off the top of my head, and Spencer Dinwiddie. Now, Dinwiddie had a career year in Brooklyn the last time he was there, and he's not really going to be robbed of the ball a whole lot because that's just not how the current style they have or how Kevin Durant plays. And Kevin Durant famously said he, he doesn't feel like he has to be a leader of a team. He just has to be the best basketball player he can be. And what he is as a basketball player is non-ball dominant. So Dinwiddie's going to fit in. Dorian Finney-Smith is going to go over, and I would start him. I think he's better than Royce O'Neal. Maybe they find a way to get both of them on the floor. Maybe they bring Finney-Smith off the bench. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work, but he's a reliable three-point shooter. Maybe not in the dire playoff moments, but he did have some really nice spurts over the last playoff uh, last playoff run in Dallas. And he's a guy who is an extremely adept and versatile defender. He's going to bring a lot to this Brooklyn team. And I want to talk about what, this what this trade means for Kevin Durant because supposedly a lot of teams are they have paused all of their potential trades ahead of the, th the next Thursday deadline or this Thursday deadline excuse me because they're waiting to hear what is going to happen with Kevin Durant if I'm Kevin Durant I'm staying in Brooklyn the reason that I left Golden State was because I felt like I wasn't getting the credit I deserved for being an integral member of the 76ers, excuse me, of the Golden State Warriors, um, of the Golden State Warriors team. So I go to Brooklyn. I get James Harden to come to town. Kyrie Irving actually picked where we, we were going, and I just decided to tag along. And in the four years that I've been there, granted one of them was out with an Achilles injury, we've been to the playoffs all four times, but we've only made it past the first round once. And in that one time we did make it past, we lost in the second round. Last year, we got swept in the first round. I can't stress enough how damaging that is for a legacy of a player who self-admittedly is not a leader and whose championship rings were, as Charles Barkley said, because he wasn't the bus driver. He was riding along the coattails of Steph Curry and that system that was in place for Golden State. If you're Kevin Durant, you have a legitimate opportunity. We There are good players on this team. Jacques Vaughn has proven himself to be a very good head coach. Now, I was saying all throughout the Steve Nash tenure, pretty much with it since a month into it, that he needed to be fired and he was not a good coach. He was a bottom 10 coach at the very best. I was met with a lot of pushback for that. I think that I've been vindicated in what ensued. Jacques Vaughn's doing well. Nick Claxton is a nice role player. He's, he's a nice starter, as a matter of fact. He's a defensive player of the year candidate, having one of the best years or the best year of his career. Spencer Dinwiddie, I just talked about it. He's a guy who can give you 18 to 20, 5 to 6 assists a night. Dorian Finney-Smith, knockdown shooter, versatile defender. Royce O'Neal, the exact same. Patty Mills, an experienced championship-winning veteran who can come off the bench with some shooting. Joe Harris and Yuta Watanabe, two snipers. Looking at this team, do you think Luka Doncic 
And this is funny because obviously the Mavericks just traded with the Nets. Do you think Luka Doncic wouldn't swap his current roster for this Nets team? Do you think LeBron James would not swap his current roster for this team? And yes, I'm. we can take Durant out of it. I'm saying LeBron would send Anthony Davis and whoever else they wanted, Patrick Beverly, Austin Reeves, whatever, for all, for the Nets role, role players. Do you think Giannis Antetokounmpo with this team would not be a viable championship contender? So why are we allowing Kevin Durant the opportunity to bail out of this with no real sort of pushback? It just doesn't make sense to me. Now, I don't think the Phoenix Suns are going to be trading for him. One team that was thrown around as a possibility was the Boston Celtics. But I've got to be honest here. If I'm Boston, I'm not I'm not totally sold on making this deal. The package would likely be Jalen Brown, a role player, maybe some draft compensation for Kevin Durant. And I haven't I haven't put punched it into the trade calculator. I don't know how the finances would break down. I'll know who would meet the salary cap and if other players would need to be included, but they would just be fillers. That they, they there's not a guarantee they would make the Celtics rotation, right? Jalen Brown is being criminally, criminally underrated. Now, when I filled out my all-star ballot, I had him in my starting lineup for the Eastern Conference. He's giving you 27 points and 7.1 rebounds per night on 49% from the field. Again, let's just go back to what we were just talking about. Jordan Durant, some of the best scorers in NBA history, they average 49% for a career. I feel like there's this image of Jalen Brown as being the, this clunky guy who isn't the most efficient player in the world. And he's very streaky and he is streaky. I don't, I don't want to take that up, take that away because that is valid, but he's not some black hole that just throws the ball up and hopes it goes in. Like he's not shooting 42%, 41% like someone like Russell Westbrook on the Lakers is. He's also, he's also a capable 80% free throw shooter. Um, he didn't have the greatest playoffs or NBA finals against the Warriors. He was exposed to a certain extent. And so if you're thinking we bring Durant in and those flaws don't necessarily reveal themselves. And also we know Durant's going to be more steady when Tatum is struggling because Tatum was bad too. Then, okay, I get that. But Brown and Tatum in my eyes will have matured an awful lot from being in those finals. And this is the best that they've looked in their entire careers. I just don't understand why, we were so ready to split them up when it wasn't working and they weren't becoming the best versions of themselves. They become the best version of themselves. And now we still want to we still want to kick one of them out. And it's not just Jalen Brown, the Boston Celtics, if they're going to make this trade, they're going to have to throw in another piece. So it's going to be a Robert Williams. I don't think they would trade Malcolm Brogdon. I think he's too indispensable to the team, but it might be someone like Derek white, Grant Williams, Sam Hauser. You could afford to lose. But the point is you're losing another one of your capable role players. And the Celtic strength is depth. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, we can afford to lose it. But I would argue that your strength is, it's the team. It's the team that's been assembled. I just don't think you want to break it up. I don't think it's that smart of an idea for either party, to be honest. Maybe maybe Durant has a, a slightly better chance in his eyes of winning a fi- of the finals this year. But I just I just don't see how it's good for his legacy. I don't see how it's good for the longevity of the Celtics. And I'm not fully convinced that they become more competitive if they make this deal. Let's switch it over to the gridiron because I don't know if you've heard, but we have a pretty important football game that's going down this weekend. Super Bowl Sunday between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. And we can start just with a very basic breakdown. 
The Chiefs and the Eagles tied for the most points scored per game in the NFL this season. They were both over 28 per game. Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes are going to finish one and two in MVP voting. The Eagles had the most sacks in the league and gave up the fewest passing yards per game. The Chiefs had one of the better run defenses, but their passing defense is pretty terrible, and they gave up the most passing touchdowns in the league. You can break it down however you want. Overall, if you were, if every position group had equal importance, if we were to weight everything at X amount and everything equaled each other, you would say the Eagles are the better team. It's just the reality of the situation. And that's why they're favored in this game. Now, I don't think they should be favored. I think that's pretty disrespectful to the Chiefs considering who they are and what they've done. But listen, guys, the Philadelphia Eagles have Jalen Hurts and they don't have Patrick Mahomes. And that sounds harsh on Hurts. And I love, I want to start, I, I really do, I, I don't just like, I love Hurts the player. He's hard-nosed, he's quiet, he has he has this humble confidence that doesn't cross over to swagger and arrogance like a Burrow and Mahomes does. It, it's just very reserved, it's infectious, it rubs off on his teammates. You can see how they respond to this guy. He's willing to play through injuries. He can throw it. He can run it. He's a model citizen. He came in with lower expectations, and, of course, he had some problems in college, so you know that his ego isn't there. He's great. He's wonderful to root for. However, Hertz has been awful in the postseason, and this is in the professional and collegiate ranks. In his postseason career, college and pro, where he started the game, he's averaging 174 passing yards per game. Is that good? Is 174 passing yards per game in do-or-die moments good? Okay, how about this? You know, Jalen Hurts, he doesn't need to throw the ball to be successful. Sure, you might be right, okay? He has a 50% completion rate. 50%. In his college career in the postseason, he only had one interception, but he had six touchdowns in five games. That's beyond pedestrian for a guy who is leading the favorites into the Super Bowl, by the way, as the odds-on favorite to win Super Bowl MVP. I just think the public and the odds makers, I don't know if the odds makers are influencing the public or the public is influencing the odds makers, but everybody has this all wrong. The Eagles could very well win this game. I don't want to take that away as a possibility. That's not what I'm saying. This isn't a forecast of what to come. This is a an objective review of what we know the chiefs have been to two super bowls in the last four years they've been to the afc championship game every year that patrick mahomes has been a starter patrick mahomes has already won an mvp he's going to win another he's the greatest performer in the history of football that we have ever seen up to this point in his career he commands the position better than anybody ever has now i'm going to pause and let that sink in Let's look at the breakdown again. Did you know that the Kansas City Chiefs have not lost by more than one score since week seven of the 2021 season? So the Eagles aren't going to blow them out. Nobody, nobody should get that idea in their head. And I said earlier that the, that the Chiefs had one of the best rush defenses in the league. I think they gave up the seventh fewest rushing yards per game. That is true. It, it, it is true. 
but they also faced the sixth fewest rushing attempts of any defense. You know why? Their passing defense was just so terrible that nobody even bothered to run the ball against them. So we have a very clear game plan, or at least what the game plan should be for the Eagles. They need to run the ball early. They need to run the ball often. They need to control the clock, and they need to keep Mahomes off the field. And granted, that's what pretty much every team, except for maybe the Bengals and the Bills, thinks, because they actually have quarterbacks who can go toe-to-toe with Mahomes through the air. Maybe Hurts can go toe-to-toe with him, period, but not through the air. The last time the Eagles played a dominant quarterback, this is what should be scaring Eagles fans. Let's just look at how they finished their season. We'll start in reverse order. San Francisco 49ers. Who's the quarterback? Brock Purdy, whose elbow blew up, and Josh Johnson, who was knocked out with a concussion. New York Giants, Daniel Jones. People love Daniel Jones this season, right? He had less than one passing touchdown per game. Get over yourselves. Daniel Jones is still not that good. He's a bottom half quarterback at the very best. Week 18, Daniel Jones again. Week 17, the New Orleans Saints. You know, that is Andy Dalton. Week 16, Dak Prescott, the best quarterback we've named so far, but he led the league in interceptions and missed over a quarter of this season. Are we really going to give him a lot of credit for that? Justin Fields, he was exciting. He looks like he has a bunch of potential, but he's still not a great player yet. He's still somewhere in that bottom 15 range. What about before that? It was Daniel Jones again. Before that, it was the Titans. I think Tannehill was still in there. Maybe it was Malik Willis. Who who really, maybe it was Josh Dobbs. Who knows? Who even cares? We know that it wasn't good. The Green Bay Packers, okay, now we're finally getting somewhere, except Aaron Rodgers was ranking in, I think, the bottom seven in quarterback rating this season. That was Aaron Rodgers the name, not Aaron Rodgers the player. The Indianapolis Colts, again, does it really matter who they had under center? Matt Ryan, he had 213 yards, no touchdowns this game. Great. And then the Washington Commanders. This is their one loss of the season, so I want to stop here. But Taylor Heineke wasn't good. 211 yards and an interception, no touchdowns. That was week 10. And the quarterbacks weren't great before that either. They played the Texans. They played the Steelers. They played the Cowboys. They played the Cardinals. They played the, the Jaguars. Maybe, maybe you can start to say, okay, the Cardinals are, are, all, right, are all right, although I think Kyle Murray, Kyler Murray is wildly overrated. And then the Jaguars, Trevor Lawrence, will stop there because that's definitively a good quarterback. But the point being, the Eagles have not placed, not played a good quarterback in many, many months. And they are now playing the greatest quarterback in the history of football from a short-term window. Okay, Brady fans, from a short-term window. Brady is the best player in the history of football, yes. But at this point, nobody has performed better than Mahomes has. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here. I, I just don't see how we have pinned the Eagles as favorites. Now Hurts is the Super Bowl MVP favorite. It just doesn't make sense to me. And now I want to talk about Hurts in another light here. And this is going to sound like more hate again, and it's not intended to be. It's intended to be objective analysis. Who is Jalen Hurts as a player? Who is he? What do you think of when you hear Jalen Hurts? He was a four-year player in college. He got benched
Celtics, as we all know. And that's where he was really good. He was outstanding, as a matter of fact. He finished second in Heisman voting. Joe Burrow was number one, arguably the greatest season of any college player ever. But in his senior season, he had 32 passing touchdowns, 20 rushing touchdowns, only eight interceptions. It's phenomenal. But those first three years of college, he was not that great. It was, it was nothing really special. And you can see that in the postseason games that he played at Alabama. When he started to play teams with other similar levels of talent, he, he was not good at all. He, in fact, he was terrible. That's why he got benched at halftime of his sophomore year in the national championship game. And Tua Tagovailoa came in and saved the day. 2020. Now, granted, this is his rookie year, and he didn't really play a whole lot. He took over as the starter, I want to say, in week 14. I know it was a Monday night game against the New Orleans Saints, which he ended up winning. But in that rookie season, 52% completion percentage, 1,060 yards, six touchdowns, four interceptions, quarterback rating of 33, 50 is average. Not good. 2021, 61% completion percentage. 3,144 yards, 16 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Again, we're seeing improvement, but is that is that good? Not really. Quarterback rating of 54, a little above average. Now you get a big boost from his ground attack, obviously, from what he can do with his legs. 784 yards, 10 touchdowns. Now we're in better shape here. Now we can say this is someone that's definitely in that 15, maybe top 15 conversation. This year. 3,700 passing yards, 66.5% completion percentage. That'll work. 22 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, 760 rushing yards, 13 touchdowns. I'm just going to jumble that together for you. That's about 44, 44, 4,500 total yards, 35 touchdowns, 6 interceptions. That's great. That's a great year. It is. That's why he's going to finish second MVP voting. Now keep those numbers fresh in your head. Because I want to compare them to something for you. 3,700 yards. 33 touchdowns. Nine interceptions. 67 quarterback rating. That includes 1,000 yards on the ground. Is is what Jalen Hurts just did better than that? No, it's not. Now, it's not miles and miles apart, but it's still not great. Or uh, that's not fair. That's not fair. It is a great season, but it's still not the caliber of that second season that I just read off. You know who had that second season? Lamar Jackson. Oh, and you know what? I actually even read the wrong season. I read the year after he won the MVP. Let's start over. That's my bad, guys. That's my bad. I messed all that up. 2022 for Jalen Hurts. 4,400 yards, 35 touchdowns, six interceptions. Got it? Okay. Next year, not next year. I'm all over the place. Bear with me here. Lamar, MVP year, 4,400 yards, 43 touchdowns, six interceptions, quarterback rating of 83. Lamar's year is demonstrably better. There's really no argument against it. And the reason I'm comparing him to Lamar is because they're both similar styles of players, not the most aesthetic passers. They can throw the ball. They can. Now, the Eagles have done a much better job surrounding Jalen Hurts with talent than the the Ravens did with Lamar. But they both run the ball a lot. They're both MVP slash MVP runner-ups. And they both have injury concerns because of their style of play. And now I know people love to say, well, what about someone like Josh Allen? You know, he's a bigger, strong-arm guy that is also an injury concern that people don't talk about. Josh Allen 
is 6'5", 250 pounds, and he does a lot of dumb stuff. So he's probably going to get himself injured too. I mean, he injured his elbow this year. Like, don't take him out of the equation. I'm not someone in that camp of we're just going to compare players who only who run the ball really well and somehow that makes them a, a danger. No, that's not necessarily the case. It's just they put themselves more in harm's way. And the reason I'm comparing him to Lamar in the first place is the Ravens aren't going to pay Lamar. That much has become clear. But they're reportedly $100 million apart in guaranteed money in their contract negotiations. And Lamar is representing himself. So as long as whoever's reporting this has any sort of connection to Lamar, I would assume it to be true. Now, the Eagles owner said they're gonna, there's, Jalen has nothing left to prove for. Nothing left to play for. Nothing left to prove. And I just want to know why. This is the first year. These are the first six months that Jalen Hurts has been an above-average football player compared to his situation. Yes, his season numbers look great at Alabama for those first two years. But again, you look at those playoff numbers, they are terrible. They're not even bad. They're not mediocre. They're not okay. They're definitely not good. They're terrible. Jalen Hurts, again, compared to the level of expectations and the level of the people around him, has been above average for six months. Do you know what the going rate of a quarterback is? It's over $200 million. Patrick Mahomes is worth half a billion. I just don't understand how we are so willing to throw this money at Lamar, or not Lamar, at Jalen, and say he doesn't need to prove himself anymore. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, I'm rooting for Jalen, and I really hope that he has a great Super Bowl, and I hope he puts this all behind him. I would love to see him win. I would love to see Mahomes win as well because then he can start to really challenge for the GOAT case. Once you get two Super Bowls, it's sort of like win one Super Bowl. Okay, you got to do it again to prove it wasn't a fluke. So I would love to see him win, but I want to see Jalen win too. I love an underdog story. He, he went to Alabama. He's not a true underdog, but he was forced to transfer, second-round draft pick, started on the bench, all that stuff. But that's what he is. He's someone who's fighting to prove himself. He's not somebody who has definitively proved themselves, at least not in my eyes, at least in my eyes. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. That was episode one of The Sitch with Graham Mitchell. Like I said, I don't know exactly how many times this is going to be coming out per week. We're going to try to have a minimum two per week. I don't know what days they're going to be coming out. But we're going to get a more fig- nailed on schedule figured out. And once we do, we'll be back with regularity. Thank you all for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Have a great day.